So we're going to be talking about a couple of things. Um, I think I mentioned in this class before that there is kind of an ongoing academic debate as to when C.S. Lewis was converted. Did I mention that before? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so lots of people write lots of papers and books about this. And I think that the reason, I, I, I've determined the reason that they do this is because they misunderstand conversion. Right. <laughs> it's actually a theological problem. Um, yeah, almost no one, uh, this idea that somebody is an atheist and then becomes a Trinitarian Christian is, is kind of nonsensical. I don't think it really ever happens that way. Um, as a person... You mean overnight. Like overnight. overnight. It's yeah. never instantaneous. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think C.S. Lewis says things through, through his... And he was terrible at remembering dates. He never remembered when something had happened to him. And the way he talks about his sort of intellectual development, I think leaves people very confused about when it was exactly that he was converted. So what we're going to look at is sort of the process. Um, the other thing about when you're talking about philosophy philosophy and theology is that it is very personal. So I'm going to get a little personal here, but, but hopefully that helps us understand this. <laughs> because when I was, let's see, it was 2000, 2000, I was uh, 19 or 20 years old. I was not an atheist. I was a pantheist. Hmm. Uh, I worshipped many gods. They were all feminine. Uh, people find that hilarious when I tell them. Uh, but it had, there's a whole hodgepodge of reasons. I've tried to think about my own theology before I was a Christian. It's very hard to do. But it was a pantheistic, um, feminine <laughs> pantheon. So, so then what happened in 2001? What do you guys think happened in 2001? Hmm. He met my daughter. 9-11. No, that came later. Mm-hmm. No. 9-11. 9-11. Uh, now, they're starting to do some work on young, restless, and Calvinist people. They, and a lot of us were actually, our conversion goes back to this year. So what happened when 9-11 occurred is that I started to ask big questions that I never asked before. I also was going to Bellevue Community College, which is extremely liberal. And, the, and when I'm around liberal people, I become more conservative. It's like my natural reaction to liberalism is to go the other direction for reasons I don't really understand. So I started to take a philosophy course. And in that course, uh, the teacher was awesome. Uh, first off, he never gave A's. He said, the only way to get an A in philosophy is if you come up with an original idea, which no one does. Um, and so the highest you could get in his class was a B minus. Wow. <laughs> he said B plus was even too close to an A. Um, but what he did is he, so it was an introductory philosophy course. So I fell in love with a man named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Now, bear with me for a moment. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then, after we all fall in love with this guy, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the teacher gives us a biography. Then we all hate Jean-Jacques Rousseau. <laughs> and there's a conservative joke that if you're in a room with a gun, and you've got Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Hitler, and um, Stalin, Stalin, yeah, Stalin there in a room, and you only have two bullets, you always shoot Rousseau twice. <laughs> and, and, I, and I firmly believe this. So what I came to find out, and what this has to do with C.S. Lewis is, I don't go along with ideas until I read biographies of the people. Uh, even today, theologians. I'm, I'm really into ba- Bavnik right now. And uh, he's a Dutch theologian. And, and so the first thing I do is I read biographies. I, the ideas have to be in the context of a life. Because Jean-Jacques Rousseau fools a lot of people. Uh, because people like his ideas, but they don't realize he's a dirtbag. Okay. So then I took a class, also in 2001, 
uh, at Bellevue Community College about whether or not there is a God. That's the class. Is there a God? And the teacher never gave, like, I was not smart enough to figure out what the teacher actually believed. Um, he did it very well. I didn't know if he believed in God or not. <laughs> but I had to write a paper on whether there is a God or isn't. That was like the final. So my parents had a copy of the great books. So I opened the great books up. There's this, these essays at the start of them that kind of um, bring every, synthesize all the information in them. So I'm reading about God, and there's this guy I've never heard of named Calvin. So I get his institutes out, and I'm reading his arguments for uh, a God, that there is a God. So I'm, I become convinced, and which leads to the also hilarious element of my autobiography, is that I've been a Calvinist longer than a Christian. <laughs> because I became, this is when I was converted to monotheism. Mm -hmm. I don't know his name. I don't care what his name is. There is one God. He is male. And Calvin convinced me of this. Okay. So then, not long after that, I meet, of course, Mrs. Kloss, uh, a real Christian, probably the only real Christian I'd ever known at that point. And that changed a lot of things. Yada, yada, yada. I end up at Mars Hill. I find out that this monotheistic God has a name. His name is Jesus. Okay. So at what point here was I converted to Christianity? Right. Right. And this is only like a little bit of the story. This is the intellectual yeah. side of things. Then years and years later, okay, it was probably 2010 or 11, uh, Mr. Hellickson, the former pastor here, is a very smart guy, could tell... He could always tell when I had some sort of theological issue that I needed to work out. And his way of dealing with it was having me teach a discipleship class about it. So he, he was like, hey, you should teach a discipleship class about the Trinity. I was like, okay. So I read all these, I read like 14 books about the Trinity. And at this point, after I'd been converted in 2004, that's when I was baptized, this is when I became a Trinitarian. So most Christians, I'm actually finding this, well, not most, I have to be careful. A lot of Christians aren't even really thoroughgoing Trinitarians. They don't even really know what that means. Most of us are monotheists. We get that Jesus is God. And most of us, if we really start to ask questions about the Trinity, don't really know. But does anyone go to heaven because of their answers about the Trinity? Mm -mm. No. Nobody goes to heaven based on their answers about the Trinity. Right? If you believe in Jesus, that's enough. So it's very, very strange how this works. Because there are guys, even now, who I've talked to them, pastors, I'm like, I think this guy's a model. <laughs> but this is like the stage. So then in 2011, at the same time, I, I was introduced to C.S. Lewis. So I read biographies of C.S. Lewis. And I, I and C.S. Lewis, even though our lives are very different, his story is very similar to mine. He went through a similar intellectual development in which he went from atheism to deism, from deism to monotheism, from monotheism to thoroughgoing Trinitarianism. And it was like a 25-year process. This is making sense so far. Mm -hmm. oh, oh. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So when we look at the life of C.S. Lewis, okay, in 1930, this is the year that it is in his life. Okay. Now, what was uh, his first degree in? His second degree was literature. Everyone remembers that one. Oh. Philosophy. Okay. So in philosophy, uh, Greek philosophy especially, because he's not Eastern, you're either Eastern philosopher or a Western philosopher. If you're a Western philosopher, you're a Greek philosopher. So he was in search of what they call the arche and the logos. Have you guys heard of these terms before? These are actually like a real, um, when it comes to philosophy, there's always like a, 
a stash of words that are like fundamental to everything. So what is the arche? So the beginning. Well, think of, yeah, think of how the word is used. What's an archangel? Right, there's angels and then there's archangels. What's an archangel? First, top. Top. That's the key there. Top. Okay? That's what the arche is. Um, the other way that Aristotle explained this is the unmoved mover. This is, I love philosophy. Okay, so if we're standing here and the door is open, and all of a sudden the ball bounces into the room, do we assume that someone bounced the ball into the room or the ball bounced itself into the room? What's the natural assumption of everyone? Someone, someone bounced it. If the ball's bouncing, someone had to put it into motion. Yes, and so a lot like Greek philosophy determined, and this is, they're not Christians, they determined something had to put everything into motion. Now, what do we actually know about the universe? It actually is a thing in motion. Yes. Um, this is why I'm still confused about why we think the sun is the center of the solar system. Uh, when everything is moving, how do you determine what is a fixed point? We, we get into very strange categories here. But there is, no, there is no fixed point in the universe. The whole thing is moving. And if you look at models of it now, it's actually, if you look at the solar system, the solar system is doing this through space. And then, right, say this is the sun. All the other planets are going around it like this. So if you actually look at it, it looks like a corkscrew. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so if this is the case, which Greek philosophers determined that the universe was actually moving, something had to put it into motion. And that is what they call the arche. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. There's something at the top that pushed the ball. Okay, the other idea here, very similar, but I think uh, important enough to make a distinction, is the logos. Now, does anyone, have you guys heard that word before? Mm -hmm. Okay, where, why is that word famous amongst Christians? John 1. John 1, and what does it say? The word became flesh and built on us. Yes, but it wasn't, it's not necessarily the word, it's the logos, right? In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was God, or with God in Genesis. Okay, now the logos is another Greek philosophical term that Paul stole, right? When they were talking about the logos in ancient Greek philosophy, they were not talking about Jesus. Now, I'm just going to read this because it's helpful, I think, on this point. The logos evolved from a primarily mathematical term to one identified with speech and rationality. At a basic level, logos means to pick up, collect, count up, give account in a bookkeeping sense. This is how the word was used before the New Testament was written. The act of bringing concrete items into relation with one another. Mathematicians used it, used it to describe ratios, mathematical descriptions of two measurements in relationship to each other. Logos eventually came to communicate the idea of giving an account in the sense of explaining a story. Having been identified with language, Logos came to, to mean all that language involves, both the act of sharing information and the thought that produces language. Okay, this, is the, this is what it meant before the New Testament used the word. By the time the Latin gained prominence, the Greek term Logos was translated to the term oratio, referring to speech or the way inward thoughts are expressed. Okay? So here's the idea. It, it, it descends from math. It becomes this concept of which makes sense of the universe. The logos, whatever it is, brings, unifies everything in itself. So John then says, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was God, with God. And the, right? And, and he's saying that Jesus is, in fact, the logos. Now, this is very important. Uh, the arche is whom? God. The logos is who? God. Now, we don't, um, 
we are typically monotheists. We act like monotheists. So who is the Ark and who the Lord God Jesus is? We don't really understand how three persons, in one, right, three beings in one God can be the Ark of the Lord God. But so we're just going to use Jesus as a, as a standard. So this is the thing, though, that all human beings are searching for. Everyone wants to know what the Arche is. Everybody wants to know what the Logos is. Everybody's obsessed with this idea. Every worldview is obsessed with this idea. Where did this place come from? How do we explain it? And what holds it together? Okay? So in 1930, this is what C.S. Lewis is struggling with. He's struggling with it along with another problem. Another problem that he has is that everything, he has these two sides of his mind, the imaginative and the rational. Now, he reads books written by rationalists and, and atheists, and he hates them. It's cold and dark and ugly, the world that they write about. But he loves logic. He loves reason. He, lo he, does not wanna, uh, right? he doesn't want to believe something on blind faith. He wants to believe it because there's reasons to believe it. At the same time, he loves stories. He loves, um, he loves fairy tales. And, and, and what he comes to realize when he's reading all these different fairy tales is that they all have something in common. They're all Christians. So his favorite, right, George MacDonald, Dante, um, Milton, uh, the Paradise Lost, all of those works are done by Christians. And he says, why is it that these people have this unified view, this beautiful unified view of the world and their place in this world? And yet everything that they believe is nonsense, right? So I don't believe it, but I love it. Now he goes over rationalism. He believes it, but he hates it. And so this is, he's struggling. And he actually said, um, there's a quote from him that helps us understand this. He says, nearly all that I loved, I believed to be imaginary. Nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought grim and meaningless. Now, he's searching for the Arche, he's searching for the Logos, and he comes to find out that the medievals, this is why he became such a hardcore medievalist, had a holistic worldview. They united everything together into this Archaean Logos. Now, if you have these handouts, some of you might have to share. Yeah, you have the, oh yeah, you have the picture. Okay, so this is the Great Chain of Being. This is another lecture I give, but I just printed it out so we could see it. If you open it up, you see there first, on the first page, the ladder. Okay, this is the ladder. This is Aristotle. And he, taught, he understood that everything in the universe could fit into this system. Okay? Do you guys see it here? Now, what, yeah, what you have here is these are all, these are, um, he fit like lower plants, animal matter, inanimate matter, higher plants. He tried to take everything in the universe, Aristotle, and fit it into some kind of system. Um, and this is very, very, very uh, basic. Now, if you turn to the next page, you see a beautiful picture from the Middle Ages. Now, this is what they call the Great Chain of Being. The Great Chain of Being was an attempt by the medievals to fit everything into a, into a cosmological hierarchy. Mm. This is how they understood the world. Now, it's really important when you use terms like this to understand that if we went back to 850, okay, and we walked up to some court doctor for, who worked for some king in France, what we call now call France, and you're like, oh my gosh, you believe in the Great Chain of Being. He would have no idea what you're talking about. Okay? <laughs> uh, it's like Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire doesn't really exist. If you go back in time and you say, oh, you belong to the Byzantine Empire, they'd be like, I'm a, I'm a Roman, I don't know what you're talking about. Never heard of the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire is created by modern 
um, historians and archaeologists to understand the period of time. Same thing with the Great Chain of Pete. This is not what they called it, but this is what they had. They had this hierarchical structure in which everything fit perfectly. So if you're born a blacksmith's son, is there mystery as to where on the great chain of being you belong? No. I, I exist here in the fourth chain. I like right. This is why back then you used to have professions that would go on for hundreds and hundreds of years in the same family. There was all this um, assurance, I think, in this world. Now, the problem is, how hard was it to climb up the ladder? Right? Impossible. Well, so social it mobility. Ladder, it was a chain. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's not a chain. Or it's a lot. You're exactly ladder. right. Right. It's not a ladder. It's a chain. It's a good good observation. <laughs> um, yeah. You're not climbing it. You're not going up or down. Now, one of the problems I think with moderns is they we don't have a unified chain like this one, and so this is why so many people feel out of place. Where do I belong? Right. And now social mobility. You could. We tell our children they can be anything we want, which is one of the greatest lies we, we, we could tell them. You, you can't just be anything you want, right? You really can't. Um, <laughs> sorry, everyone, Disney is wrong. All right. Um, <laughs> so this is what C.S. Lewis keeps bumping into. He keeps bumping into this great chain of being, expressed poetically in a way that captures his imagination, that is frustrating him because it, he can't reconcile it with what he believes is truth. Does this make sense? This is where he's at in 1930. Okay. Now, the fateful night of what they call Addison's Walk. Um, now, I'm going to go back for a second because Lewis talks about his conversion in very complicated terms. Do you have a question? I'm sorry. Do you have a question? Oh, okay. I don't want you to be confused. I'm not. Okay. <laughs> Am I confused? That's what I was wondering. Oh. <laughs> nice. Okay. So behind Magdalen College, where C.S. Lewis was a, um, a don, is this park. There's a giant park there. Now, when we think of a park, we think of like the park next door, but that's not quite what it was in England, right? A park in England is like wildness, right? Like what we call a green park. So there were deer that lived there, and there was a place that Lewis could sit in his rooms and look out the window, and he didn't even realize he was in the city. He thought he was in the country. And so a, a philosopher, prophet, um, professor that used to go to Malvern College, teach there years ago, we used to go out and walk in this garden back and forth, back and forth, and actually made a path there. And then other people would go and walk on this path. His name was Addison, and so they he slowly they created this path behind Model College called Addison's Walk. Okay, this is why this whole discussion is called Addison's Walk. So C.S. Lewis is struggling with all the things that we have already said. Okay, he read Fantasties by George MacDonald, and later he would say that his imagination was baptized. The first thing that was baptized was his imagination. That's why he's in such dire straits. And, and going back to what we originally said, um, people aren't converted all in one go. In fact, Luther famously said, the first thing that's converted is a man's heart, uh, the second thing is his mind, yada, 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 the last thing is his wallet. <laughs> uh, which is true, because it's not until your Christianity goes down into your everyday basic economic decisions that it's really become holistic. So his, C.S. Lewis's imagination had been baptized when he was 19. Now he's in his late 20s, and he's feeling this tension between what he loves and what he believes. And so he, he has Tolkien and a man named Hugo Dyson. 
both of them are good friends. He has them over to his rooms, and they start eating and drinking. And what eventually happens is they go out on a walk at, like, midnight. Because this is these, these guys. They, I mean, where's Tolkien's wife and kids? Anyway. Um, so, and they start talking about mythology and theology and Christianity. And C.S. Lewis says a couple of smart-alecky smart things, like myths are lies breathed through silver. Tolkien hates that idea. He loves mythology. And as they're walking along, Lewis, again, offhandedly says, you know, why, why are you guys consistently trying to get me to believe in a myth? It's just a myth. And Tolkien's response is, of course it's a myth, but it's true. Christianity is a myth. Of course it's a myth. You're absurd to think that it's not a myth, but it's true. And just after this happens, there Hugo Dyson, C.S. Lewis, and Tolkien are, and this great wind comes blowing down through the park, rustling all the trees, and that all three of them felt as if God had walked by at that moment to, to just point out that Tolkien was correct. Oh. <laughs> Interesting. And it's actually, all, it's been confirmed, all three of them later wrote to others about that fact. That's not just something that Mythologic, mytho, whatever. Mythologic. Thank you. Out of uh, Lewis's conversion. Okay, so this whole argument they're having is about myth and whether Christianity is a myth. Now, what what do you guys think the word myth means? What is a myth? What is a mythology? A story passed down from generations. Okay, that's where it came from. Okay, we're not really sure where it came from. It gets handed down over many years, and what is its purpose? What is the purpose? See, to describe where culture came from, how they came about, right? Yeah, how, where culture came from. Right. It's, it's a story about Arche and Logos. And, and what I find fascinating is moderns are very rude to our ancestors. We, we like to talk about how the Greeks didn't really believe in Zeus, which I think is nonsense. I think they really did. I think they did really believe in what? Zeus. Oh. Right? Rational moderns were like, well, those are just like bedtime stories. It's like they may be bedtime stories to you, but they weren't bedtime stories to the people who were telling them. Because a myth, what a myth does is it explains, okay, it's a story, first off. I don't write very well, sorry. That explains where we came from and where we're going. Okay? Where we came from and where we're going. Now, what, do you agree with Tolkien that Christianity is a myth? Is it just a myth? Well, yeah, see, there you go. You're diminishing it already. You're diminishing it already. Nice. What do you guys think? Is Christianity a myth? It's hard, it's hard for us to think of that because we have this idea that no myths are true. That's right. But if you it's a different definition of myth. We're saying myth means yeah. something false. Right? right, myth means something false. Right. Now, I find this fascinating in my history courses. Because um, I, I love the Middle Ages, and so I teach um, this section on the, the Vikings. Okay, and this is the great question amongst historians of this period. All of a sudden, for no apparent reason, the Vikings come down out of the north and start killing everyone. <laughs> and it's like, why? And I even watched a documentary one time on the History Channel about it was had something to do with the shape of their axe led them to this great conquest. Okay, well, if you go to their myths. Okay, the sagas. You open the first, one of the greatest sagas they ever wrote. And you know how it, it begins? It begins this man's mythical journeys by saying this. Our king is wicked and evil. There's not enough land to go around. We're all starving. And if we don't go and conquer new lands, we're all going to die. 
And then, so let's get in boats and go and conquer the world. And there you go. But the reason that historians don't take it seriously is because it's written down in their myths. Because there's always an element of truth in myths. That's what we're going to find out. Okay? So, um, like here's an example. You're outside, it's night, and the lightning strikes, the lightning strikes a tree next to you. Does it feel like there is a personal presence there in the lightning? Would it feel like something is there? Right? Someone hurled that thing down at me. Because things don't just get moved, move, don't just move all by themselves. If lightning comes out of the sky, somebody had to throw it. So the Norse are like, man, his name's Thor, and he is testy. <laughs> and so they have this whole way of explaining um, where lightning comes from and who's throwing it and why he's throwing it. And oh my gosh, when we were in the middle of that battle, all of a sudden lightning came down out of the sky and struck the castle or fortress or whatever, and we were able to slip in and beat them because Thor's on our side. So if you read things like um, the Odyssey or uh, you know, the Battle of Troy, like they, they get their gods involved. And what's fascinating to me is that we found out that Troy is actually a place. No one ever believed it was really a place. It was this mythical place. Well, it's not a mythical place. There actually was a war between the Greeks and the Trojans. And, and someone wrote a story explaining how it happened. So history and myth is in, in, for the ancients is always mixed together. Um, in the mythical stories, there's always some truth. And this is what Tolkien understood. He took them seriously because it's the stories about where people came from. And modern Christians, I think, this is we really struggle with this idea because it's well we're well trained. We're well trained modern rationalists. Myths are fairy tales. So if you, you would say to Tolkien, well, it's just a fairy tale, Tolkien would be like, yes, it is a fairy tale, but it's a true fairy tale. Right? Think about it. In the story of the Bible, what is the story of the Bible actually about? What is the whole, if you could sum up the whole story in one sentence? Okay, where we came from, where we're going? Kill the dragon, get the girl. <laughs> oh, yeah. Kill the dragon, get the girl. Kill the dragon, get the girl. So there's the great serpent, Satan. Jesus comes down out of heaven, slays the dragon, and gets the bride. And you're like, well, that sounds like a fairy tale to me. Yeah. Okay, and as we go in this course, this is right here, C.S. Lewis's most um, influential theological idea. There's a lot of areas where he advanced our understanding of apologetics, the Trinity, all these doctrines. The only area where he really con contributed something new, advanced our understanding of a doctrine, because of the progressive revelation. You guys ever heard of progressive revelation? Okay, so the Bible is a fixed document. It doesn't change. Our understanding of it changes. So now, right, we talk about covenant theology, you come back. Uh, so Aquinas, Aquinas, you would even be like, I've never heard of covenant theology. What are you talking about? You guys invented it. We're like, no, no, it was there in the Bible. It just took us a long time to figure out that it was in the Bible. So one of the things that C.S. Lewis has contributed to us is that mythology is a kind of natural revelation. So if you go outside, right, the scriptures tell us that the trees declare the glory of God. Well, C.S. Lewis would hold up the Greek myths and say, these declare the glory of God. You just got to figure out how. And, and, and that's his major contribution. So if you want to, right, because everybody is imitating the main, the main, true, real story in history, the story of Jesus in the Bible. And, and then why is it that every culture has some story about a flood, right? Even Native Americans here mm -hmm. have some story about how the crow was angry at the sky god or whatever, and they, there was a flood. So why, why is it that everyone has a story about a flood? Well, because there really was a flood. Is this making sense? You guys have any questions? I'm talking very fast, I'm sorry.
Okay. So at about three o'clock in the morning, Tolkien remembers he has a wife and children, and he goes home. <laughs> and Hugo Dyson and Lewis, who have returned to their rooms, drink a couple more scotches, and then go back out to Addison's Walk and continue the debate. So C.S. Lewis at this point, right, he's hounded in his mind between his imagination and his logic. And by the providence of God, every person that he comes to be very close friends with, Tolkien, Dyson, Barfield, they're all thoroughgoing Christians. So the onslaught that he is feeling from God, he feels like he's being hunted at this point, that God will not let him be. And that's why in Surprised by Joy, he says right, that when the night he feels like he was really converted, where he got down on his knees and gave himself over to Jesus, was the end of this very long process in which he said the person he most want, he least wanted to meet was coming into the room, and he did not want to meet him. He knew that he was on his way. He, he could feel him over these years pursuing him through these people and through these kinds of conversations. And, it, and finally, when he lets him, opens the door and lets him in, it's Jesus. And so he devotes himself to Jesus. Okay? But, and then he starts going to church. And he isn't at that point, at the end of Surprise by Joy, a Trinitarian. He's a monotheist and understands that the mon monotheist's name is Jesus. Okay? He didn't become a, tr a thoroughgoing Trinitarian until later. But once he devoted himself to Jesus, this vague idea in his mind, he started going back to church. He started attending, all, you know, doing all the things Anglicans do. And so that's why a lot of people are confused about when he was converted. Because is it when he started going back to church? Is it later when he can articulate doctrines like the Trinity? Was it earlier when he decided that Christianity was a true myth? Um, okay, so the big idea that we're going to look at in C.S. Lewis's life, he wrote an essay called Myth became fact. Okay? And, and we're, this is just at the beginning of this conversation. Because this conversation is going to take us, um, we're going to come back to it again and again and again. He, he became convinced by Tolkien's arguments because this is what Tolkien wanted him to do. He said, listen, you're, you're confused about truth and meaning. Lewis, you're worried about what's true. Forget about whether it's true. What does it mean? What does the gospel mean? What does Genesis mean? Right? You're, so he wanted him to go and sit down and read the Bible as he read the mythologies that he loved. Okay? Go, go and read the Bible like you read fairy tales. Let it grip your imagination. And don't worry about whether it's true. Worry about what it means. Now, what's the difference between truth and meaning? <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Truth can be subjective, but truth is subjective. Say, say that again. Meaning can be subjective, but truth is subjective. Okay. Interesting. I'll take it. There's no, I'm not, this is, I'm just letting you guys talk. What do you guys think? Laura? I don't have an answer. Believe it or not. I'm so disappointed. So, C.S. Lewis determined that his imagination is the organ of meaning. His reason is the organ of truth. Okay. <laughs> his imagination is the organ of meaning. Okay? And his brain is the organ of truth. Okay? His logic, his reason. So, what does it mean? Okay? What does it mean? Is that Steve? Is he on his way? No. Oh, it's okay. a call from Tajikistan. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'll have to call him back. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, this is what C.S. Lewis de determined, and this is what he found out. He found out, now many of you guys, how many of you guys were converted like in the middle of your life? Okay, well I was, and I can tell you right now. Well, I middle of your life, 20, for you is middle. I was 24. Right? Yeah, 24, okay. okay. So who was converted me, later in 24 life? 24 for me would be the beginning of my life. Right? <laughs> <laughs> And now, I did the same thing. My parents uh, were converted. You know, the first thing they did was burn all their records. They're, they're you know, rock and rolls of Satan. So they went out and they melted all this. My mom had this beautiful record collection. Uh -huh. Well, not long after I was converted, I did the same. I had all these books on mythology, poetry, um, all kinds of crass, horrible things. Uh, yeah, the, some of the poetry I was into was awful. Okay, so I go out and I get this trash bin in the back of my buddy's house where I was living. And I burned all of it. Burn all the books wow. like a Nazi because I thought I had to give all that up. Okay, it didn't fit, it didn't fit in Christianity. I've had to send some now, not the crass, um, erotic poetry books, I didn't buy those again, but all the books on mythology I've had to buy again. And philosophy, I, I literally it cost me money twice. Um, because I, I came to realize after I learned about C.S. Lewis that you can fit all of that in, right? There, I, when I was younger, a younger parent, before I found out about C.S. Lewis, it was like. There's no Christmas in my house. There's no Harry Potter in my house. There's no magic in my house. We don't celebrate Halloween. There's like all of this worldly stuff that I can't fit in. I can't, the meaning, I, it does, it, the story of it, the drama of it doesn't fit. It's, it's rational faith. This is why I became reformed so fast. It's because it was all about rational thought, right? Systematized. Once I understood what C.S. Lewis himself understood is that you don't have to give all of that up. He resisted Christianity for a long time because he thought he'd have to give up mythology. And here's Tolkien convincing him with mythology that Christianity is in fact true. So he says, you don't have to leave all that stuff. Bring it with you. And so he then says, okay, well now what I can do is I can argue logically for Christianity. And what I'm arguing for is that it is the Arche and the Logos that everyone is looking for. It's the, it's the system that makes sense out of everything. Right? If we go to Colossians chapter 1... This is what we read in verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is there before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the Arche and the Logos. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased as well, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is what C.S. Lewis finally found, the Arche and the Logos he was looking for, and it didn't just uh, include, right? It, it included all the things he loved. It included myth. It included fairy tales. It included uh, a love of truth, beauty, and goodness in a way that he, he did not think that he would be allowed to do. Now, why do you think he believed that if he came over to Christianity, he would have to give all those things up? You guys want to take a guess? You guys know Christians. Right. I mean, all that, pa <laughs> that pagan stuff. All that pagan stuff. You can't bring that over. You know, it's all... Yeah. It's because it... Well, because maybe it's... Yeah. It's all false, right? It is right. all... It's all false. It's, it's not all, true. There's nothing in it. Right. It's, it's all, all of the world. It's all, all of the world. world. Right. It'll, it'll, steal you, it'll steal you away from Christianity, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's deceptive. It'll, yep. It takes away from the actual truth, and it gets, like waters it down and makes it mm -hmm. too easy to be tricked by. Mm -hmm. Right? We can't possibly celebrate Halloween, can we? I can't wait. Mm -hmm. 
That used to be my favorite holiday. It is again now. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> What's your favorite holiday? Halloween, because we get to mock death. Okay. Uh, I love uh, mocking death. Uh, death doesn't win. So I'm going to carve that's, that's a good angle on it. I like that. Yeah, like it's that. the traditional angle. What are you reading? Colossians what? 1, chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. Okay, thank you. Okay? So this is, this is what... The whole point of this is there are threads here that we're going to follow. Myth became fact is going to be a huge thing that C.S. Lewis is going to talk about. The other... Um, uh, contribution is now he's going to couple reason and imagination in a way that almost no Christian author ever has, right? Can you guys think of another author who uses both imagination and reason together to argue for the Christian faith like C.S. Lewis? Because this is the other this is the other thing we're going to find out is that Nart he didn't stop being an apologist and start writing children's fairy tales. He was an apologist, so he wrote arguments for like the problem of pain. And then he wrote fairy tales because he, the two things to him were the same. Because he, like, he was like, you know, I'm sick of just straight up arguing for the existence of God. So what I'm going to do is write about this lion named Aslan. And, and, it, and so many people read those stories and they have some vague notion that there's some arche behind the whole thing. And, and lots of people are actually converted and tricked by it almost. Because they're like, oh, it's just a fairy tale. And then he goes in there and gets it. Yes, Laura. What, what verse... Because you said he's the Arche and the Logos. What verse is that in Colossians? Because obviously my translation is using that vocabulary. Verse 17. Okay, thank you. He is before all things, Arche. He existed before everything. Yep, and Logos. in him all things hold together, Logos. Okay. Arche and Logos. Now, I would argue that's exact. like, I'm going to make a strong argument for this. That is exactly what Paul was thinking when he wrote it. And he used those words. Arcanos. He didn't use those words. That's the idea that he had in his mind. Because if you, if you study Paul and John and those guys, they were Hellenists. They existed in Greek culture. And so they, they understood things in this way. And they're like, we're, right? The Greeks are looking for these things. We found it. In, he's the beginning of everything, and in him everything holds together. This is the answer the Greeks are looking for. Now, do you guys know anybody who's looking for the same thing? <laughs> Tell me where we came from. Tell me what holds all of this madness together. Is it the government? Right? Like, think of all the things people think. The RK is the government. The Logos is the government. We know people like that, don't we? The RK is science. The Logos is science. <laughs> um, you know, fill in the blank. The RK is money and the Logos is money. Right? And this, all of our idolatry is about this. What's the source of everything and what's holding everything together? I need more of that. Money, sex, power, politics. Okay, do you guys have any questions? I'm just like babbling now. Questions? RK, Logos? Okay, what's the name of the place where they were walking? Addison's Walk. Addison's Walk. And did he become a thoroughgoing Christian on the night of Addison's Walk? Not yet. No, but it was a big step, the step, I think. Um, okay, does it matter really when he became a Christian? No, really. no, no, no. I became a Christian somewhere between the years 2002 and 2011. <laughs> but I was baptized in 2005, so I can remember that much. Do you have a similar story to that? I'm sorry? Do you have a similar story to that where it was like a process? Oh, yeah. Mine was yeah. a long process. A long process, just like that. Cool. All right, you want to pray for us? Sure. Father God, thank you for this morning in this class and for... Uh, C.S. Lewis, for, thanks for Mike for uh, teaching us all about it. And, um, 
pray for uh, pray for a service here, Lord. Pray you'd be glorified in it, and we would worship you and hear your word and commune with you and uh, go out into our week uh, strengthened by you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you.